Good evening. The NHS is the envy of the world. That is what we're told by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And, of course, last year we were all encouraged to stand outside our houses and to clap. Well, it was supposed to be the people in the NHS and the emergency services we were clapping, but I felt we were also clapping the NHS too. I've known over 20 years that any criticism of the NHS, of the way in which it's funded, the way in which it's run, any suggestion that it's not always joined up together, is shouted down. You're told that you're against the nurses and doctors, that you want to privatise it, something uh, actually that Tony Blair did more than anybody else. It's been very difficult to have an open debate about the NHS. Uh, Nigel Lawson, former Chancellor, once said, it's the nearest thing we have to a state religion. But what really interested me this week is that the public are beginning to lose confidence in the NHS's ability to cope. The Nipsos Mori poll, 41% said the NHS is not coping well with non-COVID cases. And 26% said they were not confident that the NHS could give them the care that was needed. Well, I guess it's no surprise, is it? Because even before the pandemic hit, the waiting list was over 5 million people. It's now 6 million people, and it's rising very, very quickly. There are up to 60,000 people who should have had cancer treatment start that haven't because of the pandemic. And also, there is a lack of screening for diabetes and other conditions that is going to lead to just huge long-term problems. I do detect, though, there is a change of mood, and you cannot blame COVID for all of it. And tonight, the debate I want to have is, is the NHS fit for purpose? Because I don't think, without serious radical reform, it is. I don't think just throwing ever more tens of billions at the NHS is actually the solution to the problem. I think we may need to rethink it, or at least to debate it sensibly without being shouted down. Would love to know your opinions, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet at gbnews. And as ever, you can send in your questions for Barrage the Farage at the end of the show. Well, joining me to debate, is the NHS fit for purpose? Our GPs, Dr Ken Aswani and Dr Mike Smith. Gentlemen, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, Ken, I'll start with you. Uh, were you surprised to see these Ipsos Mori polls? You know, 26% do not believe the NHS uh, is fit for purpose. 41% are critical of how non-COVID care is being handled. Uh, given the lack of public debate, they're quite big numbers, aren't they? Yes, they are big numbers, and I'm not surprised. I mean, part of it is that we are in the middle of a, a pandemic in, in the sense that, you know, there is a degree of prioritisation, but also it's the messages that sort of go out, because certainly we noticed much more at the beginning of the pandemic, patients were staying away, and ultimately, you know, their, their, their diagnoses and their presentation was delayed. Now, the message going out, your symptoms are urgent, the NHS is open, they should seek um, sort of attention as soon as possible, whether it's an emergency or a serious symptom suggesting cancer or your long-term condition. Um, so um, the, I, I think that uh, the NHS is, is working fully and it's important that you know patients do access um, and we make sure we're, we're managing the cases that we actually want. 
Um, what we what we what we want to do is to make sure that we we continue to do that. I think the NHS will catch up, um, but I think it does have to juggle the pandemic uh, for the time being, and I think that's the challenge really. Um, well, Ken, but it's definitely. You know, Ken, you say that patients were staying away, uh, but actually one of the big criticisms has been that a lot of patients, uh, and perhaps slightly older patients, it may well be said, wanted to have face-to-face -face appointments with their GPs. They couldn't get them. And perhaps another reason people weren't coming to doctors and hospitals, uh, A&Es in the numbers that perhaps they might, is they feared catching COVID in hospital. And I was looking this morning at the numbers, the COVID cases in hospital in London, and a third of those people went into London hospitals without COVID but contracted it there. So uh, you can see for both of those reasons, uh, perhaps why, uh, to quote it back at you, people stayed away. Yeah, so, so in terms of sort of primary care GP consultations, um, a lot of GPs vet the consultation remotely and if the patient needs a face-to-face, -face, they, they do organise that. That's partly to reduce the risk, but making sure those that do need face-to-face -face do actually get that. What's happened around the COVID situation, that a lot of services are provided remotely in the patient's home. So we have geriatricians, we have rapid response to actually go to the patient's home to give them care, rather than have the risk of COVID by going into hospital. And that may be, actually be a model in the future, because... We know that hospitals, although they provide a great service, um, there is a risk of catching um, well, infection, particularly in viral infection, COVID. And there's a balance how we provide care. I mean, we always use the term care close to home. Uh, and that's, that's is a, a valid principle, because at home, you, you, are, you are safe, but you do need care to come, come to your door, I think. Well, again, I don't doubt there are some people, younger, busier people with jobs who need, you know, repeat prescriptions. And for them, an online consultation is fine. And I get that. And if that takes the pressure off GP services in the future, that will be one good thing that may come through it. Uh, Mike Smith, um, even before COVID hit, the waiting list, the NHS waiting list, was over 5 million. So if we just sort of almost forget this pandemic happened and go back to where we were before it, um, there were no critical voices. Any, as I said, anybody in the public sphere that criticised the way things were being run tended to get shouted down. Was that equally true within the medical profession? I think so. I think that, um, you know, I love the NHS. I, I really do. My mum was in it for 40 years before I was in it, and I've been in it for, since 1995. But one thing you can't do is say there's anything wrong with it because it's yeah. immediately treated, uh, perceived as a criticism of the hardworking people within it and the excellent services it provides when it can provide it. But unless unless we're really honest with ourselves, and I put it to any doctor or nurse or healthcare professional that can say, do you think you can refer to a specialist in a timely fashion because someone can get their hip replacement yeah. in under a year? Do you think it's easy to make an appointment with a GP, remote or otherwise? The answer is no. Now, that's not because the people aren't working hard. That isn't because the people don't care. It's because, unfortunately, the system is flawed. And it hasn't just fallen off a cliff since COVID happened. Yes, uh, you know, things got worse. But I've seen this gradual decline since I've worked in the NHS. And I've gone from, mm, it can be fixed, to it needs something wholesale now. It, you know, we're just managing failure at the moment. Well, Mike Smith has spoken very strongly there, Ken. Um, and, you know... Boris Johnson telling us we're the envy of the world in terms of our 
public health system. Just not true, is it? Because if we look across the English Channel uh, to countries like France and Germany, you know, they actually get better health outcomes on virtually every measure um, and in many cases spend less money. So, Ken, we do need to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about this, don't we? So, so I think the, the issue about, you know, should we have a debate in terms of how we can yeah. improve, totally agree with that because you, you can never stand still. Um, I think the issue about where does the NHS provide world-class care, we only have to look at heart attack care, stroke care, um, cancer care and so on. Some of the treatments that are provided are really, really genuinely world-class. But the areas that we do need to uh, sort of improve on, so say providing integrated care, particularly in terms of our, our elderly, particularly the frail elderly, personalised care in terms of those with long-term conditions, um, with children um, and, and reducing obesity, particularly what we do in, in schools, I think is critical, early diagnosis, um, and being clear in, certain, in terms of medicines, you know, which of the medicines, if they're available over the counter, do we actually prescribe on the NHS? I mean, cosmetic surgery is not available on the NHS, but do we want to be a, clear, a little bit clearer about what is not providing the NHS? There are directions that we need to go that are going to make a difference that is evidence-based from international um, sort of studies. And I think it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but admitting that we do need to work differently. But a lot of it is upstream. A lot of it is in, in the prevention field, which we've learned a lot from COVID, but we need to do a massive amount. So I don't think it's a situation that it's all about pills and operations. It's what we can do almost to prevent getting ill where we can. We've got a long well, way to go there. Yeah, I understand that fully. And I think one of the criticisms, actually, of the GP sector uh, is they too easily sign pieces of paper and prescribe pills uh, for all sorts of things. Uh, but, Ken, when it comes to preventative medicine, uh, wouldn't it be true to say that we have a massive obesity problem uh, causing health issues not just now... But the numbers, the sheer numbers of obese young people, unless something changes, is going to be a problem that could overwhelm the NHS a few years down the road. And, and that's where we should have the debate. So, for example, take the schools. I mean, some of the schools have sort of had a programme that you run a mile a day and, and their, their sort of obesity levels have dropped as their academic ability has increased. What I couldn't understand is why every school is not doing that. Um, but also to have the open debate of what actually can help in obesity. And that's, you know, certainly looking, looking at, you know, so we had sort of reduced sugar in, in products, but we've not done anything about salt or, or fat in the products that we buy. But also the, the ways we can actually reduce obesity. And if we have that kind of debate, uh, we provide the technique we provide around COVID, then we start tackling some of the huge problems. And, you know, that, that's the kind of thing we need to do because it takes time to get those improvements in place. And we are behind the rest of the country, but, but you know, there's no time sort of sooner than now to, to, to get into that because then it does become difficult for the NHS to pick up the pieces later down the road. Well, I, that's, yeah, the concern I'm expressing there. And, Mike, um, some people have said to me, leave it as it is. Uh, governments over the last 20 years or 25 years since Blair got in um, have constantly uh, shaken up the NHS, changed the management models. Uh, the last thing the NHS needs, I'm told, uh, is any more changes in structures. Uh, how would you respond to that? 
Well, first of all, it's going to undergo a massive change in structure next uh, year in April. So we're already too late for the massive change in structure. They're having a huge turnaround of it. Um, Is that, the, uh, you know, hence, hence my question, Mike, because some are saying to me that we've had enough changes. We don't need that. What's your response? My response is we either have to put a bucket load more money and way more than you were saying, Nigel, about the things it needs to pay for. Yeah. It's not 10 billion here. We're talking about significantly for it. And that's what people need to understand. Do they want to significantly raise taxes? Do they want to find another way of paying for the requirements of a functioning health service? Or do they want to scale back massively what the NHS offers? And the stuff we're mentioning about preventative medicine, unfortunately, falls in the realm of public health, which currently doesn't fall within the NHS. It might do in the future, but it doesn't. So, And those programs take 10, 15, 20 years sometimes to see the results. And yes, they're important. But in answer to your question, is the NHS fit for purpose? I'm, I honestly believe, unless we address those three elephants in the room, no. OK. Finally, very quickly to both of you, uh, we were told, get double vaccinated, all will be well. Then we were told we needed a booster. Now we're being told we need another booster, a fourth jab. Uh, is this taking up just a vast amount of time? And do both of you uh, believe that regular boosters are a good thing? Ken. So, so in my view, I think, you know, this is still a new virus and we're learning all the time. But the evidence does show that, you know, if there is a booster, it does increase your immunity. It may wane over time and there may need to be a fourth booster or an annual booster. And I think we have to ride with that. That's going to be our most effective weapon in yeah. terms of controlling the pandemic. We do want to get to business as usual, but we do want to sort of continue the battle of this. And yes, there may be more boosters, but so far it's the right direction. OK, and Mike, it's going to take up a lot more time, isn't it? It is, but it's probably going to save time in the long run. I mean, you know, look, we know that just from our own personal experience of dealing with yeah. patients day to day, that actually this COVID uh, pandemic, this wave, sorry, does appear to be milder than the previous waves. And we could, and that's probably because of the booster campaign. And if it is, that's great news. So we're probably okay. saving time in the long term. OK, some agreement there, gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. And this is a debate you'll hear a lot more of as the next few years go by, believe you me. Coming up, energy prices are soaring, gas prices at new highs, the government being urged to take action over what could become a really huge crisis. Well, the audience question tonight is, is the NHS fit for purpose? On Twitter, I get... The abject failure of the last 21 months gives you the answer. That's a bit strong. Huss says on Twitter, maybe if it was properly funded by the government, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Oh, it's funded all right. Martin says to me, this is not about the great staff on the frontline NHS who do a great job. It's a conversation about the untouchable sacred cow the NHS has become. Without reform... It is already unsustainable. Well, that's actually a view that I very much agree with. And Graham says, it's not fit for purpose, it needs restructuring, but not by private companies. No privatisation, just a good restructure. Well, there is one coming next year. We'll see whether they got it right or not. And finally, one viewer says, we would be in a sorry state without it. So many people wouldn't be able to go private. We just need to cut out the greed, wastage, the negligence, and all will be OK. Well, as ever, the NHS provokes 
strong emotions. Well, another issue that is going to provoke even stronger emotions as time goes by is the energy crisis that we find ourselves in. I have to say I've been critical of government energy policies since about the year 2000, uh, and as we have this mad rush for the unachievable net zero, uh, the problem, in my view, is getting worse. Uh, this government, Conservative government, committed to price caps on gas, uh, something which, when Labour suggested it a few years before, they described as communist. But as a result of that, we find ourselves in trouble. Uh, we're ever more reliant on imported natural gas. We've decided not to produce our own. The price has gone through the roof. We've needed it more and more because the wind sector, the much-fated wind sector, has under-delivered over the course of the last year. And as a result of all of these things and the price cap, 30 energy companies have gone bust and our energy bills are set to go through the roof. What is the cost of all of this going to be? How bad could this crisis become? Well, joining me now is former Economic Secretary to the Treasury and former Chief Executive of Energy UK, Angela Knight. Angela, good evening to you. Good evening. Now, I know you've worked there in the heart of government, and as I say, I, I, I'm, I'm mystified at our over-reliance on wind, which is unreliable, our refusal to uh, produce our own natural gas, but to leave ourselves uh, entirely reliant on imports, um, and the soaring price of natural gas, and now 30 firms going bust. Do we need a complete rethink about government energy policy? And perhaps might it be worth, Angela, having a debate about whether it's time to become energy self-sufficient? Well, Nigel, you, you are entirely correct, actually, that there does need to be a rethink. There has needed to be a rethink for some time. Um, the current energy policy has been going strong through three types of government, if you like. Uh, it stems out of Ed Miliband. It went through the hands of the coalition, and it is now in the hands of the Conservative government. And a bit like the NHS, you know, you couldn't say, are you absolutely sure that this rush to go for wind and for solar is right? Because if you said that... You were condemned for just, you know, wanting coal and not being green and all those sorts of things. The reality of energy is it's a strong engineering question. And we don't have many engineers either in Parliament, nor do we have uh, many engineers, I would suggest, in the civil service. Let me do where we need to go to first. Yeah. And then, if I may, I'll do the medium term and the short term, because there are the three things. I mean, the first thing is, where do we need to go to? You say self-sufficiency. I think I would more or less agree with that. We need to start building proper, sensible, low-carbon, zero-carbon, reliable energy. That is small, repeatable nuclear power stations. The sort that Rolls-Royce is developing. Yeah. I'm good on them. That's a really good thing they're doing. They're much cheaper than these old big boys. Um, you can build the same design over and over again. And actually, they're tremendously safe. There's a lot of money going into that, which is much further than research. It's, it's, it's coming along. And we need, as a country, to get full-blown behind that, because then we've got our reliable uh, electricity supply on which you can then add, you know, your winds when the wind blows, your solar when you've got sun, and so on. So that's where we need to get to. The medium term, I would suggest, is something which says... You need to have, or government needs to have, everybody round the table. 
Actually, we still produce about 40% of our gas out of the North Sea. And yeah. that gas both heats our homes and, of course, it does our gas-fired power stations. We take another big chunk from Norway. So it's not massively far away where we get our gas from. But we've got the most extraordinary market taking place out there. I don't think any of us have seen a wholesale gas market soar in price like it is at the moment. It's a bit like a pandemic for gas. But many of our big suppliers have, of course, got long forward contracts. They bought early and they've bought at a price and it's crossing over some of these big peaks. So there is a reality which says, look, right now, many of those big suppliers have got those forward contracts. So you're going to get your gas to heat your home and you're going to get your gas for your power stations. But when we get to the point at which these contracts start to expire, that's the key thing. And around the table need to be those big suppliers, also those who take the gas out of the North Sea, because clearly, you know, they're in a huge boom situation. And frankly, we need to think about really, you know, we've got to take some of this pain ourselves. And to government, I'd say, seeing as the environmental and social levies, you know, the, the subsidies, if you like, for green energy and for insulating certain types of homes sit on our energy bill, predominantly our electricity bill, that's costing us about 20%. So there's a whole yep. Yep. piece there. The short term, of course, problem is it's a socialist problem. I appreciate the Conservative government picked it up and they said, OK, we're going to cap how much you can charge somebody for. But by the way, you know, how, how much you buy for it can go up and up and up. When you do a socialist problem, a socialist policy, yeah. you get a socialist well, problem. Angela, I was, right I was now. astonished. I was astonished. Me too. Finally, very quickly, you know, we all know that domestic bills are going up and uh, figures yep. of £2,000 per household are being talked about. But with all these energy companies on the verge of going bust, is it the taxpayer that's going to have to pay again? I, the, tax, the taxpayer is going to pick up some of this, yes. And it may have to re, the taxpayer may really have to help as well some of the poorer end of society with their bills. Yeah. The yep. reason many of the suppliers are going bust is it tends to be all the new guys who came on the block and they weren't properly capitalised as firms and they didn't buy the forward contracts and, of course, the regulator let them do it. So they're in a much worse situation. Every domestic customer, there will be looked after. Nobody's going to run out of not, you know, because their energy supply goes. People are still going to be able to get their yeah. gas and get their electricity. Yeah. But we, we've got the short-term mess. Let's get over that. Yeah. Rethink well, the energy policy and do the middle piece at the same time. That's, it's everything, I'm afraid, Nigel, but it's all got it, to be Angela. done. They'll get their electricity and they'll get their gas, but as a price, thank you for joining us. Come back again very soon. This is going to be a massive issue over the course of the next few months and certainly over the course of the next year. Well, what the Farage? Well, as you know... 300 people crossed the channel illegally in 2018, and this year it's 28,500. And of those, of those, we've seen this trick before. Many claim to be children, when actually they look about 35 and would make quite good prop forwards at rugby. But over the course of the last year to September, 1,100 migrants who claim to be under 18 were found to be adults. And that's 66% of those who claimed to be children, weren't. They, of course, had no 
identity documents. We've seen evidence from the Tughaven um, base in Dover uh, that actually uh, there were no proper means of checking how old people were, uh, and in many cases, because of lack of interpreters, this was being done, done by asking them to show uh, the number of fingers that they had. So, basically, we've been just openly lied to by these people. Uh, these false age claims are just plain wrong, uh, and it adds, I think, to the growing sense amongst many of the real injustice of what's happening. We're asked by the Archbishop of Canterbury, we're told we must be compassionate. Uh, but how compassionate can we be uh, to people who are behaving in this manner and what can be done? Well, joining me to talk about this is David Simmons, Conservative Member of Parliament, uh, London Member of Parliament. Uh, David, uh, can you understand why people are really angry that this number of people have simply lied? I share that frustration. I've spent over 20 years as a local councillor having to deal at a local authority level with the consequences of people who are uh, a different age to what they present with. It costs local council taxpayers tens of thousands of pounds dealing with legal cases every year to try and resolve some of these issues. And it's one of the reasons why I've been very keen to encourage government as we look at the new Nationality and Borders Bill to ensure that we've got robust controls in place because the system that we have at the moment clearly is not fit for purpose in identifying individuals whose claim for asylum in the UK under our laws is not well-founded. And I think the measures that are in that will, I certainly hope, make this a much more robust system of management at the border and ensure that we begin to both weed out false claims and make sure that people who genuinely deserve help and asylum in the UK are able to get it swiftly. Might it be useful, David, if we said and made it very clear, which these days through social media makes it quite easy to do, that if we said to people uh, that if you destroy your identity documents before you reach the United Kingdom, uh, you have little or no chance of being accepted for refugee status. Might that uh, bring a bit more openness, transparency and honesty into the system? Well, people who've travelled in the hands of people smugglers and traffickers across Europe may not have identity documents. Indeed, those may have been taken from them by the people smugglers as a means of exerting control. But we know that in the first few hours, the first few days after people arrive in our country, it's really important that the discussion is had about what the rules are in the UK. And the point that you mentioned about a lack of interpreters is a really good example. Mm. Now, I've personally been to uh, the jungle camp in Calais when that was being used as a, a trafficker's stopping off point. I've seen the conditions that people are living in. We need to make sure that the British state is able to have a good conversation with people to set out what the rules are in this country to make sure that people have a genuine chance to present a good claim if they have one, but also to make sure that they understand that there will be consequences if they're not honest, they're not clear about what the situation is that they're presenting. But what would those consequences be? Because if we allow people uh, to cross the line of the English Channel and we take them into Dover, what, what, what possible sanctions at this moment in time with government policy where it is, with the European Convention on Human Rights being enshrined in British law, what sanctions do we have? Well, when we were a member of the European Union, we did have something called the Dublin Treaty, which enabled us ah. to deport people from the UK to other European countries. A small number. And I think it is right that the, the government is negotiating actively to bring about a, a return to a similar type of situation whereby we can swiftly return people. But I think more importantly, we need to process the claims quickly. We need to make sure 
that people who've come to the UK who could have come by a safe and legal route where they could have claimed asylum directly to the UK from another country, and having chosen not to do so, are, are seen that they get don't get an advantage. And we need to change the fact that at the moment, you cannot claim asylum, you cannot make a claim for refuge in the UK unless you're physically wow. here. So, for example, the suggestion that's come from France that we should process those asylum claims offshore, that the authorities in other countries should be able to do that, perhaps do it through consulates or even online. So nobody needs to leave where they are at all. They don't need to be in a boat being smuggled across the channel. They can make their application and we can make a decision about whether we are going to offer them that humanitarian protection. Their lives are not at risk and we protect the integrity of our borders. Well, that would be a step in the right direction. David Simmons, MP, thank you very much for joining us. And I'm... I'm just reminded, folks, of the Parson Green terrorist. Do you remember? Ahmed Hassan, the guy that planted the bomb on the train that injured 23, uh, and he was somebody who'd come to the United Kingdom, claimed he was 16 years old, and was, in fact, older. You see, there is danger in this. Now, this is an extraordinary story, and not a very nice one either. It's a real what the farage. Unvaccinated travellers in Canada over the age of 12 won't be able to board a plane or passenger train the discovery of the new variant, Omicron, has prompted border closures and heavier screening in Canada and abroad over fears it could prove more transmissible. Well, we know it is. But what is more outrageous is that passengers are having to wear stickers to show they are vaccinated. A passenger called Dustin took to Twitter to show he was being forced to wear a yellow vaccination sticker on a via rail train. Vaccination passports, stickers, what the hell are we going to see next? It is almost unbelievable uh, that a country called Canada can be behaving in this way. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by Elizabeth Burton Phillips, MBE, somebody who has suffered as a result of drugs in this country and has done so much in the intervening years to help families who've suffered similar tragedies. It's time for Talking Pints, and I'm joined by Elizabeth Burton Phillips, MBE. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, Nigel. To the programme. Um, and you are far from alone in this country or around the Western world and looking at what's happening in America mm -hmm. uh, right now. The numbers are horrible. But you lost a son. Yeah, I did, yes. Through drug addiction. Through drug addiction, yes. He died by suicide as a result of his addiction to heroin. Um, at the age of 27, and it'll be 18 years next February since he died. Yeah, I mean, there's no worse thing that any parent can go through, and I bet there are parents watching this now. Indeed. Who, who've had children that have had drug problems. Yes. And who are saying, there but for the grace of God, go on. Yes. Um, an incredibly difficult thing mm -hmm. to deal with. It's very hard, yes, because of the stigma that's associated with addiction and society's... When you, you say stigma and judgment, do you mean that you felt or you feel that somehow people are looking at you and saying this is your problem as a parent? Yes, I think that historically, certainly in the journey that I had with my, my son, um, because I was a teacher, it uh, was something I kept to myself because I was frightened about how society, how my school uh, would judge me as, as a mother and as a human being um, and somewhere, somehow it was my fault 
and um, you know I'd caused it and I ought to be able to sort it out that kind of thing um, it's very difficult times for us which is why when Nicholas died it was my driving force behind setting up a charity to support families whose lives are impacted by addiction. When this happened to you, did you turn for support and help? Was there anywhere to turn for support and help? Um, for the bereavement side of things, um, I found, to be honest, I found the support through writing because I am a, was an English teacher and I found that that, that was very cathartic, very helpful. Um, but during the time that it was happening, I looked for support, and apart from the Samaritans, who were not trained in that specifically specific area, yeah. there wasn't anything. They were very, very good and very yeah, understanding. Sure. Um, can't praise them highly enough for, that, for listening to me. Now, all of this happens in 2004. Yes. But in 2005, something remarkable happens. <laughs> Indeed. There is a general election. Yes. And for once, folks, politics intervenes in a good way, because <laughs> it doesn't always. It does. But remarkable. Just explain what happened in 2005. Well, in 2005, I was um, a year down the line from Nicholas's death, and there was a knock on the door sometime around about March, and there stood Theresa May. <laughs> Your local MP. My local MP, and she asked if I would be interested in voting for the Conservatives in the Maidenhead constituency, not She's my local MP, and um, I was wobbly, but I said, well, you know, would you like to come in and have a chat? I'd like to hear what you have to say about supporting mm -hmm. families affected by drugs. And she came in, and I told her about what had happened, and she cried openly, and she, support, she was very supportive. And then she asked me to speak at the Conservatives Women, Conservative Women's Association, which, you know, was quite scary because it was a large group of over 400 women mm -hmm. in Twinset and Pearls, <laughs> you know, who, who wouldn't possibly have that problem in, in their families, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, but of course they do. And they do, yes. and they did, and so many came forward. And actually it opened a new chapter in my life because mm. at that point I'd already made my mind up I was going to write a book, uh, Mum, Can You Lend Me 20 Quid? What mm. Drugs Did to My mm. Family? Mm. And that's when I met an agent, a book agent, whom she introduced me to. And this has turned your life around. You, yeah. The book has done phenomenally well and been mm -hmm. turned into a play. Yes. And you've established this charity, mm -hmm. Drug Fam, mm -hmm. uh, and you are someone that goes and lectures in prison, yeah, I do. in schools, and you're talking... I guess not just about the families that are bereaved, but, but just by the devastation that drugs can yes, cause. Yes, it's the impact that it has on the families, not only the person using the drugs or addicted to the drugs, which is now recognised, obviously, yeah. as a health issue um, and, and an illness, but um, certainly when my experience in prisons, particularly when we were touring um, the book as a play, was how engaged the prisoners were, mm. both men and women. Extraordinary. Um, and on the edge of their seats, many of them, with the way the play was performed. Now, this is the blue box that you yes. take to all of your speeches. Would you just explain that to us? Yes. Please? So, um, when Nicholas died, next to his body, um, I retrieved this blue box. And inside it is the drug paraphernalia mm -hmm. that contributed to his final demise. And this was heroin, was it? This was heroin, yes. The spoons and um, the needles and so on. Mm. 
And over the years, when I've been invited to speak in schools or prisons, uh, universities, rehabs and so on, I've always taken the box with me um, to, sh to explain to people that, you know, you start possibly with a cigarette, which is nicotine, and then you might try some, you know, skunk or something like that, and on, on you go. And eventually you could, not that you will, you could end up um, injecting heroin. And so... Um, it's been an important part of my journey. It's very, speaking it's very real. It's very real. And any Quite family... Quite actually. It is, yes. And any, any of your viewers watching this tonight will identify this if they have somebody in addiction. And, of course, Mum, can you lend me 20 quid, mm. is, mm. is the calling card for can I have some money for my drugs. So it's my ambition and it's my intention to write a second book as a sequel, um, which I want to call The Box is Blue, lifting the lid on the impact of addiction mm. on families because they are the forgotten victims and often the hidden victims and suffering, which is why they turn to drug ban. Now, you're pretty tireless in what you do. And you've spoken at, you know, goodness knows how many schools and yep. over a 1,000 public appearances. Yep. And, and you've been recognised for this. You've been given the MBE for the work that you've done. Yes, I have. Which yeah. must have been quite a nice thing. It was amazing. It was um, a lovely, lovely day, I must say. There's a picture here. There you are with, uh, yes. with the Prince of Wales investing in. I must say the excitement of the day, plus the Princess of Prince of Wales, yes. was meeting Ed Sheeran, who was there, <laughs> who was there to receive his MBE in the same lineup as me. Oh, fantastic! For his charity work. Well, and you've done great work, and you've managed to turn something. Well, it couldn't be more negative, could it, really? And you've managed to turn it around into a positive in terms yes. of your life and what you do. Now, Nick was one of a twin, wasn't he? he was, and That's right. So yeah. what happened to the other brother? Well, he's doing extremely well. Because he was in the same predicament. Yes, he is. I don't normally talk about him or identify him because okay. he is doing very well. He's very happily married and he's on our board of trustees. And he's great if you've got a problem with a computer. <laughs> <laughs> But the big problem, Elizabeth, is this. Drugs are everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, cocaine use in London. Equal opportunities, destroy of lives anywhere in the world. Yeah, I guess it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, in affluent London. Yes. In people working in reasonably well-paid jobs, mm -hmm. it seems, I don't know, people between 25 and 45 or yep. whatever the age bracket is. I mean, the numbers that take this stuff, it's just off the charts. It is, yeah. Uh, it's reached the most astonishing level. Mm -hmm. It's leading to a big debate. Would, would decriminalising an education help or not? I don't know. How do you feel about that? I don't get involved in, to be honest, in, in sort of um, debating about decriminalisation because it's our, our focus is on the families. Mm. Um, and I think that's the most that's very important that we stick with supporting them and being available for them nine till nine, 365 days a year. Yeah. And um, I think that that's, that's what our... It's a separate debate, then. It's a separate debate. Fine. No, no, really. I get that, and we'll debate. drop that. Yes. We'll drop yeah. that. Yeah. That's fine. But, I mean, it is a debate that is very being important. had, and, yes. and, and it's a very yeah. difficult one yeah. to get right. But, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Burton-Phillips, I want to put this to you. I've heard governments for 20 years and more talk about the war on drugs mm -hmm. and it seems to me we're losing it every year that I I think drug use is more widespread than it ever was 
is more accepted than it ever was. We see states all over America legalizing marijuana use. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, do you feel you're fighting a losing battle here? Not at all. I see huge stories of recovery, stories of hope. Only just before Christmas did I hear from a lady that we've been supporting in the north who's had three children on drugs and her one member of her family um, was so, so badly affected by alcoholism and addiction to alcohol that we thought that it was going to be not far from the funeral. This lady is now turning her life around and is finding recovery and it's just wonderful to hear from our family members. So there, there are, are so there are there recovery. are individual stories yes. of redemption. Yes, redemption. Um, yes. And, 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 and that's a positive. But my broader question yeah. about just the wholesale wide widespread use of drugs mm. of all kinds. How, I, do you, how on earth do you win that? Education. You just do not give up. You never ever give up um, educating our young people about the dangers, just starting with the cigarette, where the branding well, is all about the nicotine. Isn't well, it, yeah, I'm a bit of a sinner on that score, yeah. I have to say, but, you know... Well, I've been there as well when I was you know, young. And you were having a glass of wine, yes. so so in moderation, in moderation things can be OK. It can be en very enjoyable, yes. But yeah. some people would apply that argument to cocaine and other drugs, mm. wouldn't they? Some people would, and some people do, but, um, you know, the cocaine, cocaine problem, I think, is the biggest one of them all, because that's seen as sort of party drug, let's do it at mm. the weekends or, mm. you know, over Christmas and let's all get high and then all of a sudden that is seriously out of control because it is so addictive. Combine it with alcohol, you get a lot of domestic violence as well. So yeah. it's, it's, it's part of endemic in society. We, well, we, and we saw this at Euro 2020. Yes. We saw these sort of mass scenes of people yeah. just being out of their minds yeah. and cocaine had played a very significant Indeed, role yes. in that. Yeah. You know. It's very worrying to think, you know, family goes off to the football match and the father's got three or four children with him and mm. he's snorting cocaine in the loo, mm. um, getting high. Um, I think we need to get back to finding our own highs but without becoming an addict. Well, on that note, which is something I think we can all think about that because it makes a lot of sense, Elizabeth Burton Phillips, MBE, thank you. Thank you, Nigel. For joining me on Talking Pints and I want to say you're a very brave lady. Thank you very much. You really are. Thank you. Two minutes now. Right, OK, now we're coming towards the end of the programme. We've got just two minutes left. And it is time for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in, which I do not get previous sight of. So here goes. Dean asks, can the UK ever have a Prime Minister that takes responsibility for their actions and the actions of their colleagues. Uh, well, I would love to think so, but we haven't seen much of it in recent years, is all that I can say. But we don't see it, actually, from Cabinet Ministers either. I mean, Lord Carrington was the Foreign Secretary. Uh, the Foreign Office completely messed up what was going on in the South Atlantic. The signals sent to the Argentines were wrong. They invaded. He resigned as a matter of honour. No one seems to resign anymore. I think it's because we have too many career politicians. Nigel asks me, is there any likelihood that Britain will leave the ECHR? Brexit was about leaving that European treaty, and there is still unfinished business there, and I'll talk more about that 
over the course of the new year. I think the next Brexit that's needed is from ECHR and some of the agreements that were made uh, with the United Nations. These are 1950s agreements in what was a very, very different world. And if we don't uh, deal with them, uh, then problems like the English Channel, you know, it won't be 28,000 next year. Uh, it, it'll be a number that is simply out of control. Peter asks, who has been your favourite Talking Pints guest? Well, Elizabeth, of course, because she's inspirational. What other answer was I going to give with her sitting there? <laughs> but it was very good anyway. <laughs> Julia, honestly, Julia asks, are you celebrating New Year at home or in a pub? Both is the answer to that. Uh, I'll do both, but I'll certainly pay the pub a visit. Peter asks about the Ashes. How can England win a Test Series in Australia? Folks, we had Alan Lamb on last night. I looked at the numbers. Joe Root this year has scored an amazing 1,700 test runs. Rory Burns has scored 500. The third highest scorer is extras. The third highest scorer this year are the other sides bowling wides. It's unbelievable. It, it was awful last night. Ghastly. Never mind. Forget the cricket.